the same thing we see today over and over and over again. The first century church is a microcosm of this church, of all churches. And, the, and, and they serve as a microcosm of the early Christian life, our lives, and the same problems. And we're going to see that. And so uh, I want to wind down first in uh, Acts chapter 11 as Peter defends himself. He defends himself to the church in Jerusalem when the brothers, after hearing that Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit and have now been included by God into the Christian church. And instead of saying, what a wonderful story this is. How wonderful it is that God has taken Gentiles and given him the same gift that he's given us as Jews. Instead of saying that, they said, how dare you go into the home of a Gentile? How dare you eat? with Gentiles. And we spent last week talking about his defense of that, how we went through and defended everything that he did under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, a powerful defense. And then, and then we, we, we talked about how the church had been scattered. The church had been scattered because of Paul and, and his persecutions. How simple, humble people serving in, in the Jerusalem church, were frightened because they saw what happened with Stephen. And they saw how Paul, Paul was going from house to house, dragging men and women and putting them into prison, and how they, they left and scattered and went to the four corners of the world. And how that verse where Joseph turns to his brothers, his brothers who sold him into slavery, removed him from his family, for 30 years, how he had been in a pit and then sold into slavery and then put into prison. And how after it all, after 30 years, he finally came face to face with his brothers. And how he looked at them and said to them, after this incredible pilgrimage, he looked at them and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I told you that's a verse that all of you should have on your refrigerator. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And how you see that verse applied, the application of that verse here in the first century church as these people, humble people scattered because they were afraid, but how God took that evil and make no mistake about it, what, what Paul was doing was the act of evil. And what he was doing was, was abominable. But how God took that evil and took these people and allowed them to go to places that the gospel would never have been at that early a time. And how the gospel was spread and the church grew as a result of that. And the lesson for you and for me is that the people that did this were not apostles. They were not prophets. They were simple, humble people. You won't see their names written in the Bible. But these are simple people that God used and God prospered and honored and they spread the gospel. And where did they spread it? They spread it in un all unlikely of places. Antioch. And I told you that Antioch was the third 
largest city in the world after Rome and Alexandria. And Antioch was a, as modern and urban and sinful a place as you could possibly imagine. Every act of sexual depravity and immorality was readily available in Antioch. It was, a, it was as modern a city as you would find, as I said. It had a main thoroughfare that was four miles long. It was paved in marble. It had colonnades on both sides of the street. And it was the only city in the world at that time that was lit at night by lanterns. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And the evil was pervasive. And yet into this place, these humble people fled and God prospered, prospered what they were doing. And so now, if you would just turn to verse 22 of that chapter, we're now finishing up Acts 11, 22. News of this, meaning news of the burgeoning church. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And I told you, circle Barnabas, one of my heroes in the Bible, one of the truly inspired people of the Bible, a man that every one of you should look to as a role model. I'm not saying that you don't look at Paul as a role model, but who of us can have the gifts of a Paul? Or look at Peter. I'm not saying that Peter shouldn't be a, a role model. Who of us can have these rhetorical gifts and these oratorical gifts? You know, we're humbled by these kind of great spiritual gifts that God has given some of these people. But look at the gift of Barnabas. He was known as the son of encouragement. He was a man who inspired others. When Paul was first converted and he came back to the Jerusalem church for the first time, nobody wanted anything to do with him. They were afraid of him. And Barnabas was the man who took him around and introduced him and vouched for him. Barnabas. And Barnabas was the man now that the church sends to Antioch because they knew they needed someone who would encourage the developing church. And that's what Barnabas did. And Barnabas was that kind of a man. It says he was righteous and full of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful, what a wonderful definition. I could just see him there now going in and, and elevating these spirits, elevating these people. You know, you wouldn't send a guy to, that, to Antioch who would go in there and the first thing he would say when he gets into the Antioch church, what are you people doing? You can't sing these kind of songs. The service, this entire order of the service is completely out of order. This whole thing is completely wrong. We don't do this in Jerusalem. We don't do it this way. You people need a lot of correction. You, you don't see that about Barnabas. Instead, Barnabas was the kind of guy who would say, God bless you. God is using you. God is anointing you. He's taking your words. He's taking what you're doing. He's elevating it. Look at what he's done through you and your simple work. I could just see Barnabas elevating these people because when people heard that, it was like they inspired. They, the Holy Spirit made them want more, wanted them to have even greater service. And you could see that in this great work. And so what happens? Barnabas sits there, and after a while he goes, Oh, my. This is unbelievable what's going on here. I can't handle this. I need help. Where can I go for help? Where, where 
can I find a spiritual genius who could help me? <laughs> Paul. We only saw him 10 years ago. We sent him back to Tarsus. I wonder how he's doing. Let me go get Paul. That's truly a person of encouragement. And now I want you to put yourself, if you would, because this really is so significant to my heart. Paul, I just had the greatest conversion, arguably, in the history of the world. Jesus knocked me off a horse, blinded me, and spoke to me personally. And Jesus himself said to me, I would be called and go and speak to kings and rulers and Gentiles all over the world. And I went back to the Jerusalem church and they told me to go home. They told me to go home. They sent me back here and I've been here for 10 years, for 10 years. Brothers and sisters, how many of you are saying, God, I want to serve you. I want a ministry. I want you to use me. I'm available. And day after day goes by, and you don't see precisely what God has called you to do. This is a lesson for you in spiritual patience. It's a lesson for me. I can tell you, it's a lesson for me. If Paul, if as great an evangelist as Paul had to wait 10 years because God wanted to do something with him that he needed to have done that was between Paul and God, how can we say, God, what's, the, what's the problem? How come, how come you're not using me? How come I'm not seeing the, your, your provision in my life? And so this is a great lesson for us. Uh, and this really became an issue in my own life when I felt some years ago that God had made a significant call on my life. And um, I frankly, for me, I was ready to walk away from the practice of law about 10 years ago because I felt this, that God had made a very serious call on my life. Uh, and I remember telling my father, I said to him, uh, I said, I, I believe that God, God has, has called me uh, and I'm, I'm considering giving up the practice of law. And my father said to me, go slow. Go slow. And so I happened to become very good friends with Gary Chapman. You know, the writer, the marriage counselor, very good friends. And I had invited him to my home here in Naples. And I asked, and Gary, when I spoke to Gary, and he said to me, what did your father say? And I said, my father said, go slow. He said, your father's right, but remember this. You can't steer a car unless it's moving. So the question for us is, are we moving? 
And I'll leave that to you to answer for yourself. Barnabas goes and he gets Paul. I can just imagine what that had to be like, that reunion. We don't know anything about what was going on there for 10 years. I'm sure it could not have been easy. I'm also sure that Paul continued to do the work of God. I'm sure that he probably developed churches, and I think that some of the churches that they, they went on to visit in their missionary trips later were probably churches that he first started. We don't know anything about it, but we know he was isolated from the greater Christian church. Now he comes back, and he's reunited, and the two of them together form this tremendous partnership that will become one of the great partnerships in Christian history. Paul and Barnabas. And the church grows and grows. And for the first time, the, the, the disciples in Antioch were called Christians. Circle that. Christians. That's the first modern usage of the term Christian in Antioch. Imagine that. And then in verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, circle each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And so what you see here is a very different picture of what we saw the Jerusalem church a few years earlier during the time of Ananias and Sapphira, where everybody was doing well and everything was being shared equally, now that church is, being, is suffering. That church is under famine. There's want. There's privation. There's issues in that church. And so the people in Antioch, because of their love, their Christian love for their brothers and sisters in, in Jerusalem, decide to reach out and help them. But notice how the, the model for how they help them has changed. It's not each and everyone sharing commonly. Do you see this? It's not sharing commonly. Now what, it is, what is it? Each according to his ability. In other words, nobody saying specifically, you give this, you give that. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying to each person's heart, based on your ability between you and God, you give what you believe is appropriate. That is the model, then, that the church followed from that time forth and the model that we use today. And so that gift was then given to the Jerusalem church. And so now Luke changes the scene. And we move on to Acts chapter 12. And so now the picture changes. We're no longer focusing now in his story on Paul and Barnabas. We're no longer focusing on Antioch. We're now focusing back again on the Jerusalem church. And what happens? Verse 1, it was, it was about this time that King Herod, circle King Herod, arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. This guy comes from a wonderful family. <laughs> this, this is a classic, this, this guy is a winner and he comes from a long line of winners. His full name was Herod Agrippa. <laughs> There's an A in front of the G. 
This guy is no relative of mine. Okay? Herod Agrippa. His grandfather was also Herod. He was Herod the Great. And remember what wonderful thing Herod the Great did? He murdered all the babies that were two years old or younger. So what a wonderful gene pool we have here. And, and you have to understand this position. This was a territorial ruling position that was given by the Romans. And they put a Jew there, someone who would be a titular Jew. Obviously, these weren't devout Jews, the, the, the Agrippas, Herod Agrippa. But they were Jews, and so what they were really were, were politicians. What they were were people that knew what would I do, what could I do that would allow me to stay pals with the Jews, keep this country in peace, because after all, that's what the Romans wanted. The Romans wanted peace. They didn't want uprisings. So what do I do to placate the Jews and yet show that I'm, I'm, I'm a Roman, that I'm, that I'm a Roman citizen, that I still bear the authority of Rome? And what, it, what he realized early on is, you know, I can accomplish this very easily by persecuting the Christians. This is beautiful. It's perfect. It works. And so it was at this time that he arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, encircled pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Pleased the Jews. What can I do to please the Jews? You know, I'll bet they remember that sermon that Peter gave to the Jewish elders. You remember the lesson we did about two weeks ago when I juxtaposed the two speeches? Peter first to Cornelius and then to the Jewish group, remember? And Peter saying to the Jewish group, you, you killed Jesus. You, who the prophet said was the son of God, you killed him. Well, you can imagine at the time that that left his lips that the Jews said, he has got to go. He has got to go. And so clearly, clearly, what can I do to please the Jews? This guy. I get rid of this guy. This is going to make me very popular. And so I do two things. I get rid of a guy that the Jews despise, and I get rid of a guy who is also pretty much the leader of that church. I do two things, which will put me in good stead with the Romans. I've done two things. And so this was clearly a calculated political move. And so he decided, he, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is right immediately after Passover. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Do you think he was afraid of escape? <laughs> he put 16 centurion soldiers in charge of this fisherman. And let's understand what's going on. He handcuffs him. One on his left, one on his right. 
There's a centurion here. There's a centurion here. He's sitting there like this, sitting in a prison cell. And at, the, and at the gate where the prison, to get into that prison, there are two other centurions. And he changes these guys every six hours. So nobody's tired. Nobody's sleepy. Everybody's fully awake, fully alert. And there's Peter handcuffed. This is an extraordinary story. And you really need to go through the facts to fully understand how significant this story is. And in fact, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm going to talk about later is the fact that many of the elements of this story are corroborated by the Jewish historian Josephus. One of the things that, that historians look to to corroborate the accuracy of anything is, is there any other secondary corroborative source that talks about this? Well, it just so happens that Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing the history of the Jews, is going to talk about events that appear later in this chapter, in this very chapter. And it will be a word-for-word -word recitation of what Luke says. So what does that mean? That means that a Jewish historian, not a Christian, not for religious purposes, has corroborated Acts. Okay? So when people say to you, how can you believe the Bible? You can believe the Bible for any number of reasons, the most important of which is that the Holy Spirit tells you in your heart. But there are other historical aspects of this that corroborate it that you should be absolutely secure in knowing this. And we're going to talk about that. And so there he is, harnessed up to these centurion soldiers. And let's see how he reacts to this. So as he was, verse 5, while he was kept in prison, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Please circle, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Brothers and sisters, this is the role of the church. This, more than anything else, this, more than anything else, is the primary role of the church, praying in earnest. Amen. This is what we have to learn to do. And, and I understand how difficult it is for some of the things that we pray for. I'll almost call them the prayer of lost causes. You know what I mean. When someone you know, a loved one, has got terminal illness. When there's some incredible burden, a financial burden. When the world seems like it's collapsing. When there are relational issues. And you people can put so many different things in there. And I know that every one of you here, every family here, has these issues. I know it. My heart is burdened for this. Sometimes I try to pray, and honestly, I'm, I'm so burdened by the enormity of some of these things, it's almost as if God, I can't even put them into words when I know of some of the really burdensome things. And it's like you just go before God, and you go like this, oh, God. And it's the sigh. The Holy Spirit reads the sigh. And it translates the sigh. And, and, and so the point I'm making is think of this church they're praying for a guy who, if you were a betting person, would say, he's gone. It's hopeless. It's over. 
They killed James. They put him to death. He's in there. He's hooked up to 16 people. He's dead. It's over. What are we praying for? You're praying for God's intervention. You're praying for God's intervention. You're praying for God to give you the wisdom to understand what the Lord's will is. You're giving him, you're asking not only to intervene, but you're asking him to intervene in your heart so that you can come to terms with understanding what this is about. When we pray, it's not just God give us the miracle. It's God give us the miracle, but God also in your will, in your perfect will, help me to understand what this is about. It's this enormous thing that we have to learn what the role of the church is. And I'm very much burdened by this. And so we're going to see here that they were praying in earnest. And so, verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping. Please circle, Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping? Did he have a frontal lobotomy? <laughs> Peter was sleeping? Sleeping? Man, look at where you are. You're hooked up to 16 soldiers. Where are you going? You're sleeping? But you see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit does because Peter remembered a promise that Jesus made to him. Peter, you will die when you're an old man. Remember? Jesus told him that. Peter remembered that. It's like you could take those promises of Jesus and you can put them in the bank. It's like we always say, Jesus holds us in the palm of our hands. And what a lesson this is for you. I want you to see this and a lesson for me. That in the midst of this horrendous persecution, this state of absolute hopelessness, that God gives us the grace through the Holy Spirit to be at peace. To be at peace. Yes, I have a serious illness, but I know that Jesus will not abandon me. Yes, my finances are in total disrepair, but I know the Lord will sustain me. Yes, I have these issues in my family. I have these relational issues in my family, but I know the Lord will intervene. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to stay the course. And that is why, folks, I say to so many of you who have these serious illnesses, when I see you come out week after week and I know that you're suffering, I want you to tell you, tell you assure you, you are preaching to me. Amen to that? You are preaching to me. I see people who've come out and are getting chemotherapy and have these ongoing issues and you come out and you come to church and you stay strong and you stay in the word. I want you to know, brother and sister, you're preaching to me and I know you're preaching to others. You can't imagine what that ministry is. And here he is. He's doing his preaching from prison, hooked up, handcuffed, handcuffed, and yet he is demonstrating what we are supposed to be about. And you know what? Here's a lesson for us. If we can't live like this, then what do we stand for? If we can't live like this, if I can't live like this, what do I represent? If I can't do this, what makes me different from the people on the street? Nothing. 
You see? This is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when I say, when I say that we, our spiritual life is like a pail with holes in it, that the morning, that the moment you get out of bed and you put your foot on the ground, that it starts leaking. And frankly, for me, it starts leaking about a half an hour before I get up because I start thinking about all the issues in my life and I'm drained even before I get started. And that's why our prayer life is so important because the only way that we then restore this relationship, we fill this pail up, is to go back in prayer and to pray and, and, and to have that lifeline through the Holy Spirit where we say, God, please intervene. Please help me. Give me the strength. Give me the understanding to, take, to go through these persecutions, to go through these issues, to go through these health problems, to go through these relational issues, only through prayer. And, my, and, and the thing is, and the thing is this, it's prayer constantly. And honestly, for, for us, as we, get, we develop more maturity as a Christian, all day long, all day long, you should be praying. I don't care what you're doing. You should have that prayer language where you just, in your mind, and you speak to God. And my sister reminded me this morning when I said this after class, she said, you know what Charles Spurgeon said? Charles Spurgeon said, I can never pray longer than 15 minutes, but I never go longer than 15 minutes to start praying again. Amen to that? I never go longer than 15 minutes to pray again. In other words, my whole life, I'm connected with him. That's how that pail stays full. That's how I can sit there hooked up to Roman centurions, knowing that, that two days before my fellow disciple was executed. I can do that because I remember through the Holy Spirit the promises that Jesus made, and I know he holds me in the palm of his hand, and he will not fail me, and he will not fail you. And that's what we need. We need this. This has to be imbued in every part of our life. We're going to end the lesson here. We'll continue it next week at this point. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for these beautiful people that come out week after week, Lord, to hear your word. I pray that the word grows in their heart and is multiplied and touches their spirit, Lord, in every possible way. I ask you also, Lord, to protect them, to pull a wall around them this week and protect them and their families and everything that they do and bring them back next week safely. We put all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.